Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Um, and so, it's, there's that evidence base that it's not a harebrained scheme. Um, but the next big thing is going to be. Welcome to Game Dev Advice the Game Developers Podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This episode is with Albert Skip Rizzo a clinical psychologist and director of medical virtual reality at the University of Southern California Institute for Creative Technologies. He's also a research professor with the USC Department of Psychiatry and at the UC Davis School of Gerontology. Over the last 25 years, Skip has conducted research on the design, development, and evaluation of VR systems targeting the areas of clinical assessment, treatment, and rehabilitation. His work is focused on conditions like PTSD, TBI, autism, ADHD, Alzheimer's disease, stroke, and other clinical conditions. I think this is an interesting discussion on how gaming and technology can be used to help others beyond entertainment. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, Skip. So uh, where are you calling in from tonight? Oh, I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, nice and warm weather. Uh, where are you, John? <laughs> I'm in uh, Chicago suburbs, and I'm looking down here, and it says six degrees. So um, oh. I bet you you've got a zero after that six in L.A. right tonight. Yeah, thereabouts. Uh, you need to come out here and visit. <laughs> yeah, L.A. is beautiful. I have a lot of friends out there. I always have a good time out there. And yeah, E3. That's I used to go yep. out there in May for that video game award show and stuff. So yeah. That's great. So you're in LA and you're, uh, what's your current role at uh, USC? Well, I'm at the Institute for Creative Technologies where I direct what's called the medical virtual reality research area. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also have um, research faculty appointments in psychiatry and gerontology. So kind of tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got started working with the game industry. Well, you know, I'm a, a clinician by training a, a PhD clinical psychologist and mm -hmm. In the late 80s, early 90s, I was working in brain injury rehab and uh, mm -hmm. working with folks like you or me, have a car accident, a stroke, injury, whatever, and help them to recover their function. And I, I got really frustrated with the limitations of the tools that we had for, for doing this, a lot of paper and pencil workbook exercises. Mm -hmm. And one day, uh, early 90s, uh, one of my clients came in, 22-year-old, frontal lobe injury from a car accident very hard to motivate and maintain his attention. He came in with um, one of the first Game Boys. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, Skip, you got to see this. And uh, I go, what does it do? And he goes, watch. And I sat there and watched him for about 20 minutes glued to Tetris. Right. And, and not only was he a, you know, a Tetris warlord, but he was glued <laughs> to it. He, he was maintaining his focused attention on this task in ways I'd never seen uh, doing traditional types of cognitive rehab. And so it was the first light bulb. And then a couple of years later, I actually, you know, I actually brought in, um, I had a Nintendo NES system at the time. Okay. I brought in SimCity 
Uh, and I, <laughs> I used that. that. <laughs> yeah. I used that with some of my clients. That, you know, it was a it was remarkable once they could master the interface controls. You know, in mm-hmm. these old game pads, mm-hmm. um, it's the ultimate executive function training activity. You know, you've got to implement. You got to envision a strategy, implement it, monitor it, modify it, repair it, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. And, and a number of my clients really liked it. So. I mean, that's how I got on the path with integrating gaming into a clinical app. But mm-hmm. a couple of years later, I learned about virtual reality and it all came together. The idea of using simulation technology as a way to put people in environments where we could test, train, teach and treat uh, human functioning. But specifically in that area, it was about brain injury rehab mm-hmm. and hopefully integrate gaming features to make it fun and compelling so that these folks who because of their injuries had difficulty maintaining their attention they would stay engaged so i started going to conferences and i wrote a paper and uh finally by 1995 you know i said heck with it and i uh, left my clinical work and took a postdoc at usc started going over mm-hmm. the com- computer science building and bugging people you know to, to get <laughs> access to equipment and programming. yeah those are the early days right I mean, that was oh, you know, Stone Age, man. Stone Age, right. <laughs> Wires sticking out of things and tethered and. Two hundred thousand oh. dollars silicon graphics reality engine, yeah, you know, indigos and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And um, and it, I just lucked out. I met a guy, Ulrich Newman, computer scientist, who had some history in the gaming industry in the early days. Hmm. Um, and he liked the idea uh, of doing things in VR. He knew somebody with an Immersa desk, which was a three D projection system at the time, okay. and it was off to the races. And we started building things that ran on that platform, and then in 97, 98, started working on with head-mounted displays and uh, built out an application for testing kids with attention deficit disorder, and uh, it just blossomed right. from there. But that was definitely the early days, and it's um, you know when you see what you can do with the Vive or even the Oculus right now when you're not tethered, it's pretty exciting. Oh, it's, it's night and day. I mean, the good news with all this work because you know it was a slow haul. I mean, it wasn't until like mm-hmm. 2000 we were able to convert um, our SGI software to. Be be able to run on a on a pc um, right. and that was a major step forward mm-hmm. um in fact when i started the lab in 96 actually i um i thought by 2000 we'd be in roses i didn't realize how long <laughs> it would take i might have chickened out if i had right. known it would take this long but You're like where's that moore's law what the hell yeah, right that right right <laughs> i think it ran at a slower pace for yeah. virtual reality but um you know what ended up happening you know over the last 25 years two important things the the technology caught up with the vision because the vision was certainly sound in the early days you know leveraging uh, simulation technology and infuse it with some game principles or elements mm-hmm. uh, and and that has all caught up and the other good news is uh, in spite of the the technology limitations, a, a very large scientific literature has emerged in the application mm-hmm. of virtual reality for clinical purposes, whether it's anxiety disorders, ADHD, PTSD, autism. And so we probably have the largest scientific literature of any use case for VR in mental health and rehabilitation. So uh, wow. we're in a, we're a good spot now where, you know, you can use a standalone headset and mm-hmm. deliver fairly credible content that makes the, the barriers to adoption uh, quite minimal now. Right, right. Yeah. You, you know, the uh, indigos and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's fantastic. What do you wish you had known when you'd started back then, you know, thinking back? I've asked myself that question and thought, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe it's better you don't know things. <laughs> right, right. Ignorance is bliss, right? You know, like yeah. I've done things. I'm like, yeah, this will work out. I'm like, holy uh, crap. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was uh, twice about that. But, you know, I mean, each step of the way, there was like new learning that, you know, just kind of organically grew so that I feel pretty comfortable now from all the mistakes I made, mm-hmm. um, you know, overestimating the power, you know, capabilities at that time, initially underestimating the, you know, the serious need for true interdisciplinary collaboration across a wide range of, of things, not just me and a programmer sitting down, yeah. but inter- interface uh, experts and graphic artists and mm, game right. designers and, mm-hmm. you know, folks that really had, um, a lot of capability and all the nuances of building a compelling and engaging app. And quite honestly, that is one of the, the things that I think is is one of the most important areas 
you've got to build things that engage patients. You've got to break down barriers to care. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can do all the studies with the fully formed evolved applications and do them in controlled environments and document some clinical outcome. But in the end, it comes down to engaging patients to do things that might be very difficult for them ah, and that's a good point. Uh, you know uh, and and that's where you know experts in in gaming that understand you know the flow channel or what mm-hmm. however the technical term is um, the, that's essential for good design and when you want to motivate people to do things that like physical rehab after a stroke you know, I mean, yeah. you know, it's not rocket science. You just got to do repetitive training in, with very targeted activities to help people recover mm-hmm. that function. But the, most of those activities, if done in a traditional format, are very boring, repetitive, right. and frustrating. Yeah, 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 you get frustrated. They don't want to do it, right? So. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, you, yeah. you two months ago, you were, you know, operating like, you know, regular, and then all of a sudden, half your body's not working right. Yeah. Um, and so this is where I think the engagement factor is one of the key elements for success here. And, mm-hmm. you know, big time game aspect here. Yeah, because it gets into the, um, you know, player psychology and, and how to motivate and, and just how to have rewards and even the dopamine kind of rush, you know, for, mm-hmm. for achieving things so that they mm-hmm. stick with it. Right. Because you have to get them engaged and, and want to keep leveling up and doing the next thing so that it's successful and that they get better. And user interface is big too, right? Because if people get frustrated, they don't understand, you know, then they turn away. So uh, the Fatui first time user experience, you know, it's like, that's always a challenge in traditional gaming. Like, is it too long um, or is it too short? And then they don't know what they're doing in the game. So it's, it's trying to find that sweet spot and calibrate it, getting player feedback and everything. Well, I, I think that's uh, one of the big differences from uh, gaming and, uh, and film is that there's a mm-hmm. science with gaming. There's measurable things and there's, you know, yeah. I think there's pretty strong guidelines. You know, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field, but I've hung out with plenty of them. <laughs> and it seems like there is more of an evolved science in game development in, in cinema. It's still an art. Certainly there's a science there. Right. I mean, look, I don't want to minimize, uh, you know, filmmaking uh, in that way. It certainly is a science, but it, it, to me, it, it's a it's a different animal, and mm-hmm. uh, we can inform game development and subsequent applications of games. Uh, yeah. You know, from a lot of principles of human factors, HDI, uh, and you're still mm-hmm. going to make it artful and creative, so you yeah, can't eliminate right. that either. Yeah. So the initial reason I reached out was about your um, your Brave Mind program and um, helping vets with PTSD. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm really yeah. interested in that. Well, that was a project that came about as technology was getting better um, and also the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan were really starting to show the the dark side of war aside from, you know, the natural dark side of death and destruction, but uh, the enduring psychological effects that some people experience when they come back from those situations, try to reintegrate into civilian life and so on. So um, it was in... um, 2003, I first had the idea of building out uh, a virtual reality exposure therapy system uh, Hmm. that was based on Iraq and Afghanistan. And it really, again, it was inspired by a game. Um, a game called Full Spectrum Warrior. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember that game. Yeah. yeah. And I, I happened to stumble upon a clip before it got released. And as I looked at it, I go, geez, if we're going to build an exposure app for treating PTSD, this is the kind of content you'd want. And then as I dug into it, I found out that USC had had a part in that. Full Spectrum Warrior was actually funded by the Army as a combat tactical simulation game. Hmm. I think Pandemic Games evolved it into an Xbox uh, application. And, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, had a good amount of AI in it at the time. Um, mm-hmm. But armed with that information, I went to the, the people at the Institute for Creative Technologies that had been involved in that project. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, can you give me the art assets of the game and I'll find a programmer and we'll build a prototype. And they were all over it. They said, oh. sure thing. And uh, it just so happened there was a guy working there that I was a friend with, Gerald Pear. He had worked at, at Georgia on a virtual Vietnam scenario that uh, was developed in 98, I think. Hmm. And he was all in. 
you know, it was a way for him to not just do programming, but do some programming for a purpose that he really loved. And, yeah. and we built this prototype in 2004, got shut down a bunch when we applied for funding. One reviewer said, well, we're not going to have the same problem we had with the Vietnam era war and all that. Was, oh, like, like it was not needed, you mean, or? That was that was the re, that was the reviewer's really? comment. But you see, up until that point, wow. every, it was still mission accomplished era, you know. Ah, and, you're and, right. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until July of uh, 2004 that the uh, New England Journal of Medicine published an article where it outlined the epidemiological statistics around PTSD mm-hmm. in Iraq, Afghanistan. And Iraq was substantially higher, but Afghanistan still had a, a significant problem. Yeah. And after that article came out. A guy from a funding agency from the Office of Naval Research, Russ Schilling, reached out and he said, he said, look, I heard you have this prototype that you showed at a conference. Uh, let's meet up. Uh, I think I might have funding. Great. And um, the funding came through finally in 2005. And that's when I, I started my work at, at ICT, Institute for Creative Technologies. I, I was working on the main campus at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was off to the races. And, you know, we built a prototype. Uh, after the funding came in 2005, we built an actual clinical delivery system, very limited still. In 2006, mm-hmm. we started testing. Um, 2007, a little bit into eight, we completed that testing and okay. published first paper on this, you know, showing the, the efficacy. For right. your listeners who don't know about how and why, basically the principle here, and it's an evidence-based approach that previously was done exclusively in imagination the idea is to help patients to go back to the traumatic event in imagination Mm -hmm. and to confront and reprocess those memories but in a safe place with a supportive clinician so basically you're asking people and it sounds like torture uh, You're asking back and go, revisit, right? I mean, yeah, yeah the, wow. thing, the thing that they're they're vitally avoiding at all costs. I mean, right. that's part of the nature of PTSD. You know, they people with it, they try to avoid thinking about it or going to places that remind them of it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, and these are places in the civilian world that really pose no threat. But you know, walking mm-hmm. into a crowded restaurant or these mm-hmm. are triggers. Seeing trash by the side of the road reminds you of where mm-hmm. an IED was hidden that blew up your best friend. You know. Yeah, all yeah. all these things. Um, and so our job as uh, clinicians is to help people to gradually, the pace they can handle, mm-hmm. confront their demons and talk about it. So right. we built up four contexts um, that represented Iraq driving, Afghan driving roadways, um, I think an 18 block generically themed Middle Eastern type city. Mm-hmm. And we could put people in it, and the clinician had a control panel where when you would put someone in a relevant environment, they could change the time of day, the lighting, the sound effects, the number of people. Oh. Um, but it was still pretty pretty primitive. But in spite of primitive nature of it, when you yeah. put somebody with PTSD in it, they're like, you know, whoa. I mean, they see it on a screen, and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. this reminds me of a video game of from the 90s or something, you know? Right. But when you put that headset on and you're immersed in that environment, all of a sudden mm-hmm. the emotions start coming back and right. you have to titrate it back so that, you know, you can pace it so that people yeah, feel yeah. comfortable talking about their experience. It might be I'm driving down a roadway and we're heading towards Fallujah and I'm talking with my best buddy and uh, then I see a guy up ahead and he's on his phone and then all of a sudden an ID ripped apart the side of the vehicle. My yeah. best friend's lying there screaming and it's very hard memories, but you know, yeah. um, you try to get the patient to take it back a few steps. Like, all right, what were you doing an hour before? Tell me about your best friend, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, you know, and so you're trying to help a patient to put a toe in the water and then eventually not avoid but talk about this stuff and that Mm -hmm. was the beauty of this kind of stuff even with impoverished graphics and limited functionality you know it was very emotionally evocative and people were finding patients were finding they were talking about things they had never talked to anyone about before um Right. It was just under the, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like under the the surface, but it's still there. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and at first the the field of psychology and trauma psychology, they were very skeptical. They were always saying, oh, you're going to over, 
or you're going to re-traumatize people. It's going to be oh, too provocative. Too but much, it, too fast. Uh, yeah, you know, that yeah. Kind of stuff. but quite the contrary. I mean, we showed that there was actually feelings of empowerment, kind of like in a game when you reach a certain level. Mm -hmm. uh, these folks, when they were able to, to actually just even stand in a location that was reminiscent of where their experience mm -hmm. happened, that was empowering for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, the, that research continued to evolve, and uh, mm -hmm. we ended up, uh, for those folks that know some of the programming software, we were using a program called Gamebryo back then. Yeah, Very I remember basic. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like an yeah. egg was their logo or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you, ha you had to build all your own features, collision detection. I mean, it was a nightmare. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but around 2011, uh, Unity was starting to, to um, mm -hmm. you know, start to catch on yeah and uh, we got funding to take everything we learned from you know about 50 sites that had adopted this this four scenario version. now these sites are they like uh, va, VA, hospitals? Yeah, VA yeah. hospitals army okay. medical yeah. centers mm -hmm. um, some private clinicians some uh, university clinics that uh, had treatment programs hmm. and so what happened was we got another tranche of funding uh, and we rebuilt everything from the ground up using unity and yeah. went from four worlds to 14 worlds and wow. it was the ultimate uh, of user-centered design because the feedback that we built the new version with was all mm. from patients and clinicians that had used the first version clinically. Mm. Yeah. You know, I would get emails every week. Do you have uh, Afghan village in a remote area or forward operating base? And, you know, I put my head down and go, wow. I'm sorry. I wish we did. We just didn't have any funding yeah. to do it, but we kept good notes of all that. And right. then when the time came, we built out all those worlds. Yeah. And so, um, it, it evolved and it went beyond uh, just, um, you know, the exposure therapy approach. It went on to mm -hmm. become simulation tools that you could do assessment of PTSD, put people in a standard environment and look at their physiology, heart rate, skin conductance, look uh -huh. at how amped up they get and how yeah, quickly yeah. they recover. And a number of studies were published on that. And we built a pre-deployment um resilience training system that was kind of like an immersive narrative where you're with a squad and you're on missions and mm -hmm. then a pivotal event happens you know bad thing at the end of the five to seven minute episode mm -hmm. um instead of being in watching band of brothers on tv you're in the band of brothers episode basically mm -hmm. um and then when that bad event happened, which was modeled after the kinds of things that we heard from treating folks with PTSD, you know, seeing a kid die or yeah. blown up in a home V at that moment, when the crap hits the fan, then a virtual yeah. human mentor would walk into the scene. Okay. Uh, like Rod Serling in the Twilight Zone. Oh, you know? right, right. What you're seeing and, now is... Yeah. 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 And, and would guide you through the kinds of coping strategies that might be effective in dealing with mm. that kind of thing. Mm. And our mantra for that was, you know, let's put ourselves out of the out of a job on the back end treating PTSD by doing a better job preparing people in advance for what they might be exposed to. Give them the help. tools, right? Yeah. How to react. And yeah. Exactly. Next step was um, modified the content and built out a military sexual trauma version hmm. and uh, did a safety and feasibility study on that. Uh, because you know everybody a lot of people were wigging out like you know all right we get combat related ptsd but sexual trauma that's yeah. quite a bit different it certainly is yeah um and it's but, it's, it's more prevalent than you think you're, you're oh, hearing yeah. more and more and more about this and it's just oh, terrible. God. and mm -hmm. and we're poised nicely for that now because what we had to build we when we got the funding to do it I figured we're going to have an easy go of it. We modify our combat worlds, you know, put in some barracks, and, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it turned out when we started interviewing folks, we found out most sexual trauma in the military was happening stateside at military bases or in towns around the bases. So we had a, you know, marshal a major effort to build out civilian contexts mm -hmm. uh, where we could systematically control the clinician is updating everything that happens in the world in real time, you know, time right. of day, number of people, you know, uh, what sound effects, who, who's walking yeah. out of that bar door, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did the safety feasibility trial and showed number one to, to you know, deal with the critics. We had no critical incidents, no, no bad things happened. People didn't run out, 
right. uh, the room. Um, but we also found with this small sample, real clinically meaningful and statistically significant reductions in PTSD with this population. Hmm. And right. so now we've got a you know thing that has a lot of civilian content just ready you know, for the next application for civilian PTSD. And that's, that's really where I'm focused on now with this project is hmm. working with, um, you know, civilian sexual trauma, uh, police, which is big area, yeah. tremendously yeah. underserved population, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. particularly with undiagnosed PTSD or sub threshold, which still has an impact on their job performance. Yeah. Um, an area we're putting a toe in the water with is uh, teenagers with have had adverse childhood experiences. This is like a big topic now. Hmm. Looking at kids that grew up in situations of abuse, neglect, household dysfunction. Yeah. Um, you know, the stats are, are horrific for uh, poor educational attainment, higher levels of justice system involvement, delinquency, and so on, mm -hmm. uh, substance use, uh, all, all right. these. And, and physical health. I mean, you, you see a higher level of cardiovascular disease in people that have had high numbers of these adverse job experiences. So hmm. working with some foundation in that and moving forward. Um, yeah. my, my mission now, and this is just the PTSD thing, this is one of a variety of projects, but my mm -hmm. mission is to kick shit stuff out of the lab, you know, to yeah. get it in the hands of real people that could use it, you know, beyond right. research studies. Yeah. 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 And the, te the technology is ready for that. We can do that mm -hmm. stuff. So we, we've done that with our, our ADHD work, um, you know, mm -hmm. for improving diagnosis and um, better um, better assessment uh, of ADHD for uh, developing treatment plans uh, okay. and stuff like that and stroke rehab stuff, and TBI rehab, mm -hmm. um, pain management. All these areas are hot topics uh, yeah. where we've got a good scientific literature to show that, you know, VR can add value. It's not a magic bullet, certainly. And, you know, you got to have good clinical, you know, input in the whole thing. Yeah. These are great tools. No, and, and you just think about the... Um you know, the opioid crisis, right? Like if, if people have tools to help them cope and, and, and deal with things, maybe that, you know, that can help diminish that, right? Like, you know, people have pain management and if they can process and, and figure out ways, you know, to help with that without the opioids, then. That's a perfect example. Um, and, and VR has been shown directly to improve pain management both mm -hmm. acute and now evidence with chronic pain yeah. but here's a here's a kicker for you like putting two and eight together <laughs> to yeah. get hopefully get ten but um i just read a, an article of a study done uh archival study with like something like eight thousand people and okay. they found that people that got total knee replacements at the ones that got physical therapy within 30 days after the total knee replacement mm -hmm. showed less opioid medication usage six months and a year down the road so what does that say you know a lot of times after uh, just you know these are just regular folks you and me yeah. get knee replacement yeah you know, I know you gotta do your, knee replacements so yeah no yeah no. and it's like you gotta do your physical therapy and you say yeah okay i will i will but you go home and you kind of walk on it when you can you don't do yeah. it in a structured way but you it still hurts, get a lot of pain. right you know, so yeah yeah nah, screw it well no. if you do the physical therapy you know, you, you get better outcomes and the pain management factor with good physical therapy. So yeah. how do you do that? Well, you put physical therapy in a game, you use trackers mm -hmm. and your leg, as you do the exercises can kick a soccer ball into a, a net or, you know, All or right. what, whatever right. the activity is to make that rehab, that, that mm -hmm. PT and OT, um, more fun, and engaging. If you increase yeah. adherence to that, you may actually have an indirect effect on, you know, on the opioid crisis. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, they're, they're not dipping in the bottle to, to deal with the pain, you yep. know? So yeah. And I'd done just a little bit. I had a very, very minor motorcycle accident about I don't know, mm. six years ago. And, uh, you know, you, you go to the physical therapist, it was like for the wrist and it's like, you get the sheets and you're like, it has these little drawing, drawing, sound like, uh, Michael Myers, <laughs> uh, the drawings, you know? And, um, you're like, God, this is boring, you know, and it's just so dry and boring and yeah, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that later. But if there's a way to make it engaging and especially for something that's more serious, you know, I, I just, we have a, uh, a friend who, who is dealing with a stroke, you know, in her fifties oh. and it's just, 
just brutal, right? Like it you is. Know, the therapy and, and just regaining abilities. And, uh, you know, if there's ways you can do that with VR and, and with gaming and stuff, just to, to help with that therapy and get give, giving people slivers of that life back. Hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Yep, it's so important. By the way, are you back in the saddle? Did you oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Get, get back on the bike? And, yeah, uh, get, yeah. Good, okay. good for you. I've had a couple. I've been a lifelong bike rider, motorcycle rider, and yeah. uh, I've had a, co- a few close brushes and yeah. uh, accidents along the way. But I'm I'm still riding. Oh yeah, yeah. I got a Yamaha Super Tenere. That's the main ride, and I'm at get all the gear all the time. No alcohol, no booze, none of that yeah. stupidness. Always wear the lid. Always wear yep. the, 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 yeah. everything. Just be smart about it. But yeah, I, I'm 25 plus years. Uh, yeah. and um, I've got two dirt bikes and the Super Tenere. So yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's That's, in the blood. Yeah, you just—it's like flying. You know, you can't—you you can't stop. Um, yeah. Hell, I could mm. go on for twenty minutes or an hour about that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's another podcast. Yeah, that's another podcast. Uh, game dev and motorcycles. Let me t- let me tell you uh, why you got to do it. Um, well, you, you know what? You work with a lot of people too, right? Like I'm thinking about you know designers and artists and all that kind of stuff. So, like, what kind of advice? you know do you have about developing your interpersonal skills you know the eq those you know kind of soft skills because you're working with all kinds of people right i'm thinking like funding and then game devs super wide net of, of yeah types. yeah well a couple of things uh the first one is more anecdotal and it's whenever possible host a number of your uh team meetings in a bar and have a few beers <laughs> right break <laughs> some bread you know yeah, and, yeah. exactly right. exactly but you know i think a lot of it comes uh the success derives from you know mutual respect you know i mean i go in with a clinical idea and i sketch it out on you know napkin or on a whiteboard yeah and 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 solicit ideas and, and realize you know in a lot of fields it's not necessarily this way mm-hmm. you don't have to be the smartest guy in a room you know mm-hmm. you, you gotta you gotta bring in smart people and hopefully they're smarter than you mm-hmm. and you bring them together and you, you develop a, a shared purpose and the good news for, you know in this field is that a lot of people that work in, in you know in computer science and in games yeah. um they kind of like the idea that they're building something that could have you know some value beyond just entertainment value that totally. you know yeah. what i'm doing what i'm doing is going to help uh, you know, maybe my uncle who had his stroke or maybe me when I get that. <laughs> yeah, right. I, mean, I have to do something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah that's your yeah. purpose is, mm-hmm. is a big part of it. And mm-hmm. a couple of beers now and then. And, right. Uh, respect. And, and you know what? More than respect, curiosity. Like, look, mm-hmm. at, I'm never going to be a, a, a full-on programmer. Less programming I did was when I took a Fortran class in graduate school. <laughs> you know, that dates, yeah. that dates me. But I'm curious about what they're doing and ask mm-hmm. questions. Um, and, this, you know, with graphic art. I mean, you know, there's a way that your curiosity can be validating for people in other fields and not to, not to be phony about it because I'm genuinely curious about yeah. what, what their process is. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's part of it. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky. I, I played rugby for a long time and mm-hmm. learned a lot about how, you know, it's a team sport. Um, you know, you, you sure it's great to have a superstar, but right. You know, it's, it, it's, this only as strong as the weakest link. And, uh, and, and so I've carried that, that kind of a attitude 
into the, you know, the work that we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes time to writing papers, you know, a lot of our publications have got probably more authors and data points sometimes <laughs> because <laughs> I try to include everyone. And, you yeah. know, a, a guy who's been toiling away writing code and all of a sudden he gets a publication in a journal of anxiety disorders. It's like, wow. Yeah. Uh, cool thing. You know? right, right. Or APA or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And I think people sometimes too, I can see them being excited about that, right? Because it's like, you know, it's not purely for entertainment, right? Like this this mm-hmm. has an effect. And I say, I, you know, I work at Level X and we make games for doctors, right? Like, and you know that these games are helping doctors. Doctors help their patients have better outcomes and you're indirectly impacting millions of people, right? And and that really resonates for some people. Um, yep. It's the, you know, games for good, right? Or gore yep. for good, as we call yep. it. There was a Chicago Tribune article about us in 2017. and. I think that resonates with people and yeah, it's exciting that people are embracing that and kind of joining your, your tribe there doing this stuff, which um, is helping people. I think people that are drawn to this whole field from all disciplines that continue to work in it, they're, they're special folks, you know, mm-hmm. they, yeah. they, I mean, they, they want to do, you know, the work that they're experts in, but you know, they want the meaning. And uh, once yeah. you get a little taste of it, it's hard to go back to, to doing right. something that it doesn't have that element. Yeah, and and they, you know, myself included, probably have a personal story, right? Like, or something mm-hmm. kind of, you know, wow, you spent, you know, seven weeks in the ICU, um, right. myself personally, but my mother, and just being exposed to that and seeing that and, you know, having uh, a great deal of respect from the surgeons to the people, you know, cleaning up uh, bedpans oh, and stuff they like that. They got a hell of you a know, job. They got a crazy hard job. And I was just blown away. And I was like, damn, these people work their asses off, you know, up and down the line. and. Yeah. And it's like um, nothing but, you know, complete pain respect. and suffering around them. You know, <laughs> yeah. Just being able to process and deal with that. You, you know, you make a game, you make a game, but like these people are dealing with like real shit. So yep. I have nothing but respect for people that, that do that and that people that help people that do that. I think is very yep. noble. Yep. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're facing a real uh, crisis, um, you know, with um, the stress that COVID has brought to the mix mm-hmm. with the healthcare yeah. professional population. Oh, you know, be- you know yeah. before COVID, uh, doctors and nurses, they were at the top of the heap when it came to suicide rates. Right. Um, yeah, they already had it tough before that. Yeah. Now we yeah. pile this on two years, right? And Jesus. Guys, poor people yep. are just like, I'm going back in for a 12-hour shift and I'm putting everything on and people yelling at me and it's just like, yep. bullshit. Yep. So, you know, we're actually um, starting up a project with virtual humans on this one where <laughs> healthcare, all, uh, anyone in the healthcare system uh, will be able to go online privately, anonymously, anonymously yeah. and be able to interact with a virtual agent that is, okay. you know, voice recognition, natural language processing, mm-hmm. uh, friendly face, and mm-hmm. you know, all private. And the character will engage them in a dialogue about how are you doing, you know, oh, okay. and, and so on. And then the character introduces, look, you know, if you want to do a little self-assessment of where you stand, let's walk through this professional quality of life questionnaire. And mm-hmm. this thing, you know, measures compassion fatigue secondary ptsd general burnout yeah and after they go through those 30 items then the character mm-hmm. you know instantly tabulates it and says okay this is where you stand you're high on this sometimes you see this yeah. blah, blah 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 go on and then say if you want i can pop up a couple of strategies that in your specific case with your scores mm-hmm. might be helpful or we can just talk a little more and yeah. in a way to you know healthcare people are the last ones to want to take the medicine so right. if you engage them in a way where they can self-reflect and you give them helpful tips and they see where they stand mm-hmm. perhaps that is the first step towards right. you know towards better mental health for these folks and maybe at some point the character says well your scores are you know i have i would have concerns if i were you uh here are your options you know if you want I can pull up a list of mental health providers in your area code or whatever, or mm-hmm. I can uh, point you to some self-help tools. So yeah. on and on and on. So, you know, I think the, you know, VR and virtual humans, I kind of say in the same breath because they're becoming more and more useful for engaging people in that 
face-to-face dialogue, but without the risk, you know, you're not being judged. There's no shame in in saying, yeah, I'm having a miserable time. What can I do? Is it beta or is it out? out, We had built one for the army. God, it was 2014 and very basic. It mainly administered a questionnaire and then popped up a few odds and ends. But I'm working with a a group in Boston, Mass General and a a company that just got some money from the state legislature to build this out now so i'm revisiting our all our designs from the from the army version and now Mm -hmm. updating everything with the new functionality and the new ideas that we learned from that prototype again you know i want to get things out of the lab that was one we did it was a nice experiment but it never went anywhere Mm -hmm. now we have a chance to have some serious impact yeah that's fantastic and whatever you can do to help people in the healthcare field healthcare field and healthcare workers that's just great like yeah nothing Nobody deserves it more. You've worked on a lot of projects. Can you pick one that's been your favorite? Or I've got favorites in different areas, like work with autism, with um, job hmm. interview training, with high-functioning autism. That, that was one of my favorites because we actually got serious real-world outcomes from that kind of training with a population that's hard to engage sometimes. Right. Um, and so that's good. Now it's being translated to disadvantaged youth, and that's part of the package with um, what we're aiming to do with the Adverse Childhood Experiences with this foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, probably my the best work was one I described to you, the resilience training um, pre-deployment, because yeah. that brought together such a creative team. I mean, Hollywood writers. I mean, you were, we were actually writing immersive narrative scripts in 2014 and okay. putting people in VR where... You know, they had free agency. They could wander off from the squad and explore the world and not get the benefit. But we were able to design it in a way that drew people to walk along with the squad and to participate in things and consequently go through the, you know, these difficult things. That to me integrated, you know, a lot of, you know, like in game development, you know, narrative is as essential yeah. as programming and art, you know, and right. uh, and so, feel. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm proud of that one. You know, I like working with kids too, you know, so the yeah. ADHD work, that's good because, you know, you feel like if you have an impact at that age, you know, you might be affecting the next few decades yeah. of life. Right. Um, the tra- yeah, trajectory of these kids, right? You know, it's like, yeah. it, it helps yeah. them. What about you? What's what's one of your favorites? And I've worked in all kinds of games. Um, you know, I worked on a Beavis and Butthead game in the mid nineties, which was we had to ship it, and it was like a, you don't know Jack ripoff, and they're like, you got nine months, the skeleton team go, we're gonna put it in a box and sell it for twenty bucks. So I watched every episode twice and wrote all the uh, trivia questions uh, and. Um, Went out to Santa Monica and, and spent some time with Mike Judge, who's oh yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome dude, funny as hell, and recorded stuff. And um, that was the first time I'd ever really cut my teeth as a producer. That was uh, 1996. It's an interesting field. And, and just to see the technology evolve, right? Like, I, I got involved in 89 when it was, you know, 16-bit, you know, Genesis right. and the Turbo Graphics, right. you know, right. and sprites. And, um, <laughs> and it just... Man, you know, where we've gone in 30 years, so now it's like, well, where are we going to be 30 years from now, right? You, you know, oh, that man. that just blows my mind just to think about that kind of it's stuff. It's almost scary. <laughs> it might yeah, be too it good. is kind of scary, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm like, maybe I don't, am I going to be around for this? And what the hell is this going to be, you know? So, uh, yeah, 30 years from now, it's like, wow, um, just the evolution yeah. of everything. What about you? Like, what are you curious about in the industry right now? Just whether it's, you know, in your field or just in you know, mm-hmm. the game industry and you know, what are your thoughts about things? I won't do my typical meta bashing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, what I will say is the, the concept of metaverse has been around for so long. It's got hair, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, it's kind of insulting for Zuckerberg to have right. uh, made his big to do about it as a Neil Stevenson. Kind of a, it's, it's, sorry to interrupt. There, yeah. When I was at Viacom, we did, we were working on a snow crash game back in the nineties and, I guess I, I was in a meeting. I missed him. He came by the office. You know, the whole idea of building a game around that type of stuff, you know, back when the metaverse was coined. And it might have been before that, even with, with him. But yeah, the, the idea that Zuckerberg is like, yeah, I'm just going to own it here and be in my company. <laughs> so you forget about all that other bad shit we've done. So I do have some concerns on, on that front, mm-hmm. uh, particularly as uh, potential for getting data from people's actual behavior and yeah. uh, simulations um, and how is that going to be used. Um, right. But by the same token, I'm, I'm very optimistic because there's a lot of, you know, really uh, well-meaning ethical companies that, you know, want to pursue 
the games for good or the mm. VR applications. Uh, I'm working with um, a medical device manufacturer uh, mm. called Penumbra that now they made tons of money building these catheter approaches to fix it for intervening when somebody has a stroke instead of drilling a hole in your skull and pulling out a blockage or an aneurysm, fixing an aneurysm and going through your leg and do it from the yeah. inside out. It's called the artery, right? Or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, it's impressive. And, and, and it's a rarity. This guy that founded that company, he's just so pro-social. He's saying, look, now we're, we're helping people when they have these strokes, but they still, some of them still have a lot of impairment because they don't get to the hospital quick enough. Yeah. I'm going to invest in VR. And it is going to be a major part of our business. So they've got massive funding, and they're where they're based out of the U.S. or, or? they're yeah they're in uh, up in Alameda in uh, California. Hmm. You know, it's just a, a joy that somebody and a company that has the resources, you know, is willing to you yeah. know take this plunge because you you know you see all kinds of startup wreckage. You know, VR is like the siren song. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> right. wants to do it. And, right. You know, they run out of money and after yeah. they, after they build one really good thing, but they can't distribute it or make right. money on it. And yep. it's sad. Uh, but I think this is, you know, that's a good thing. I, I think the whole standalone VR headset mm-hmm. um, movement, I mean, that's that's where it really had to go. And, and, and yeah. you know, we're approaching a time where, you know, every home, we'll have a headset like it'd be like a toaster you know every mm-hmm. home's got one you might not use it every day but you got one <laughs> and uh and who knows how the headset technology will evolve but mm-hmm. um and you know you gotta you gotta give facebook a little credit even though they're very predatory um in yeah. terms of some of the things they're doing in in that area and with the ar stuff they just poached a bunch of people from uh from microsoft's uh all yeah. lens group right but you know, I think we're living in a good time. Where, and Apple, I'm right. Like Apple's get getting in. Yeah. I'm curious what they're going to do. Like I, I'm really curious. Yeah, I, I, you know, for all their flaws, I trust Apple way more than I trust Facebook. Yep. So yeah, yep. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely, same here. Same here. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm a fan on that regard. And you know, I think we have you know the potential for these technologies to really have a positive impact. But if you're going to accept that, you got to realize there'll be some downsides. And so now can we learn from our social media experience? Can we learn from, you know, all the different, you know, natural things that that do go wrong, unanticipated consequences. Um, Can we learn from those things and and guide the future of digital technology and interaction and, you know, all the cool things. Can we guide Mm -hmm. that in a way that's going to be a net positive outcome for humanity and not, uh, not, not make things worse. Yeah. I think, I think there'll be good things. I, like, you know, how, you know, AR, everybody is like, you know, saying, Oh, AR is going to kick VR's butt, mm-hmm. you know, but that, you know, it's like saying, what's a better tool, a hammer or a screwdriver, you know, just mm-hmm. depends on a job, but yeah. there's a lot of potential for AR to add value in everyday mm-hmm. life. Um, I think it's discussing an idea for, um, an app called augmented morality. And basically, <laughs> you, you, this, the glasses, you know, you're wearing your sunglass-like AR sensor, and uh, okay. you, you look at a company logo, and mm. up pops their carbon footprint, their diversity, <laughs> equity, inclusion uh, uh, stats, uh, how, what political campaigns have they donated to. And right. Maybe, you know, you're in a mall, if malls still exist, and you right. look at one logo, and you get their stats, and then you look, look at their at competitor. Right. Uh, yeah, and you go, I think I'm going to buy from that company. Yeah. So, I mean, all that data exists already on websites. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how do you get it in an easy way to use her. So mm-hmm. for every one of those, there's probably a number of other applications that we got to be a little wary about. Um, yeah. But we're mm-hmm. taking baby steps in the information age. I mean, it's just like we're learning the sins of the industrial age, you know, 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years later. Right. And maybe we can learn from all that and use the alleged information age i hate to use that old school term but right yeah maybe to cure some of the sins of the industrial age and prevent some of the the natural problems that emerge when you're playing in an area that no one has ever played in before yeah with, yeah without any uh guardrails and stuff and yeah. um, you know speaking of ar like our um our parent company brain lab is big in the digital operating room space and one of their products uh is on the magic leap which takes ct scan data Right. And, and, and uh, why, why uh-huh. look at that flat? Right. Like you, yep. we put it in the magic leap. 
So now as a neurosurgeon, before you're going into surgery, you can plan, strategize, and really think about that operation in a more holistic way. way. Yeah, because you're like looking at the brain and you can, you know, spin the skull and look at, we're going to drill here, we're going to go in that. And you're not looking at this flat two-dimensional in the Magic Leap, right? And, you know, the Magic Leap, nobody nobody cares it's $2,500, right? Like if it has value and it's it's really doing stuff, you know, consumer, eh, not such a smart idea. No, but in the enterprise space and in the medical space, you know, 2,500 bunch bucks is chump change in the medical space. In case two of them break, right? Like nobody cares about that if it's adding value. And now you can have neurosurgeons planning that surgery in a more complete, better way. Like, and we actually, it was actually shown to be used at USC Davis when there were twins that were born conjoined at the head and they had to figure out how to separate them, right? Like, so seven months of surgery or excuse me, seven months of planning where they went into this 24 hour surgery. And and one of the tools that they used was brain labs, uh, magic leap tool to plan that surgery. And they successfully separated the twins and and had a great success, right? Like, and that's real, right? Like these, these kids, lives have been changed forever, yeah. you know, by being able to do that surgery. And, wow. and part of it, you know, was because of brain lab and the technology that our company level X worked with. Um, you know, just- I think I saw something about you guys, uh, online last week. Um, are you, do you have yeah. you already gotten the latest, the latest magic leap headset or there's a new version of magic leap coming out called 2.0 yep. with a healthcare focus. And, and that's yep. something I'm dying to lab. see that, you know, so, you know, those kind of applications for AR are really exciting. Uh, and, we, uh, we did, uh, we did a project with them in the beginning when, with their first thing with, um, with our autism work, you know, instead of delivering a virtual human on a mm-hmm. big TV screen for job interviewing, you put on the original Magic Leap and sitting okay. across the table from you was that virtual human that ah. conducted the uh, the the mock role play interview, right? Uh, and it was it was very compelling, but it was really proof of concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't sure. A lot of times, you have to figure out what is the best delivery mechanism to get it to the most people. So what's a funny or odd story from working on all of your projects? I'll tell you one uh, is that uh, <laughs> most people don't know it, but um, Palmer Lucky, um, mm. before he did his yeah. startup, he worked with us. Really? Uh, yeah, he he got, he, he, you know, he was a barefoot high school kid that had mm-hmm. a garage full of every head mount display. And he right. came and met with Mark Bolas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he was no, Mark. a big, big time name in VR. Okay. And Mark said, oh, go skip. I got this kid who's, you know, he's like a savant for head mounted displays. Do you think head mounted displays are going to make a comeback? And I go, you know, once the technology catches up, yeah, I think you should hire him, you know, mm-hmm. let him work in the lab. He's got an energy. Right. And so he, he did. And they started playing around with wide field of view headsets with very primitive stuff. Um, but, was this like um, 2014, 2012? This was, no, this was like 2010, 11, um, and, you know, right before he actually got started. And so yeah. Mark, who had been building headsets for, for years, he owned a company called Fake Space. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, he taught Palmer a lot of things. And Palmer was also a self-starter. Yeah. And then it, there, he was running short on, on funding at the time. And he goes, Skip, I think we need a uh, little bridge money to keep uh, Palmer. You got something. I go, you know what? For the PTSD project, I'm sick of using these crap headsets that we've been using. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he could build a prototype of the Wi-Fi, which is what the code name was for our thing, and um, and and have a go. And let's see. Yeah. And he built a, a primitive version. I don't have the optics, but I have all the uh, I have the original casing that's all duct taped and wired <laughs> together. I figured it'll be a museum piece. Sometime. Super glue. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, he worked huh. for us about six months, and then I think he got wind that maybe university environment's not a place to productize things uh, and right. then he went off and then the rest is history right, right. but um you know i look at i'm not going to speak anything ill of the guy because he was a nice guy when i worked with him mm-hmm. uh wish him well in his future uh mm-hmm. you know as he gets older maybe he'll think a little differently about some of the political things yeah. he backs uh you know right but right not for Definitely. me to say yeah he was a nice guy when i worked with him you hear stories about him and being like in a trailer and doing all this stuff and then it just you know exploded and everything so yeah are there any games you're playing now that you're excited about you know i i've tried to limit my um my gaming to like mm-hmm. i get i have a i think i have addictive nature so um right you get into you know it, i like yeah. you know i i started to get hooked again uh, i i had 
with that Nintendo system I told you from the early 90s, the NES yeah. system, I got hooked on this game, Contra Alien Wars, and I ended up losing a girlfriend over it because I was more <laughs> interested in playing with the game than right. and she dumped me and it broke my heart. And I I like said I, you know, I have this addictive nature for this stuff. I gotta stop. But now that you know, I've been playing stuff on the quest and for part of the job, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm playing cognitive training games that uh, some of my colleagues have developed and said. And then I sort of slip into a little robo recall and mm-hmm. I, I felt that twitch again, you know. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I just felt like, you know, Beat Saber, I could justify that because it was, you know, a bit of a workout as right. well. Yeah. Um, Cardio. So yeah. yeah. So I, I tend to be um I tend to be a little cautious, although at my right. advanced stage, you know, go down the rabbit crap. hole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember when SimCity Sim 2000 came out. I, I was addicted to that. Like I was just up, you know, wee hours in the morning, like, uh-huh. building, and uh, you know, maybe it was a, the project manager produced for me, but like getting all the electrical working and getting the plumbing working, and just just like that, uh-huh. just one thing after another thing after another. Then be like, oh, it's three a.m. I gotta go to work and, exactly. and, and, and make games. Like, what am I doing? You know, and uh, it's it's uh, slippery slope. Sometimes you can get kind of hooked into it, and you kind of. Um, addictive in that sense so yeah yeah that's how i was with contra alien wars it was like my girlfriend said all right come on i'm going to bed i go i'll be in i just gotta get to this next level come right. on get- come on come on come on there's no save there's no save right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. those old games like you couldn't just die and get saved right where you're at like you had to play for hours sometimes between checkpoints so it was, it was brutal um, I, i've been thinking about putting a toe in the water with some of the games on the quest and, and stuff but I, i'm just yeah. gonna be cautious because i still have so much work i don't want i don't want to you know end up yeah three hours of my day taken away okay so kind of tell me how psychologists have uh reacted this work you're doing it was a hard road to hoe back in the late 90s early 2000s you know when i would go to apa mm. conferences american yeah. psychological association and yep. i would have to spend half my talk just explaining what vr was and why it was of value mm. and it was hard um you know and people that did know a little bit about it they still suffered from the nuclear winter perspective of vr as a failed technology and all right that. and then there was also people in psychology that thought you know this was uh you know an unholy assault on therapy that whenever you use uh technology in a therapeutic context you're putting a barrier between yourself and the client the therapeutic alliance is compromised and all that so so like you Uh, should be on the couch and the person should be talking right like that kind of like that's the exactly plan here okay yeah you know, and certainly I agree that the therapeutic relationship is essential in all this, but you you mm-hmm. can build that relationship by engaging people in VR things. And I'll give you an example. When people are doing the PTSD work, you know, a lot of times veterans, you know, they'll judge their therapist by whether they were in combat or not, or whether they even served, you know? Like, mm. what could you know about what I yeah, went through, you know? Exactly. What we found, anecdotally anyway, it was mm-hmm. a lot of times patients would say, I feel like you understand what I went through. Even though you weren't there and you've mm-hmm. never been in combat, you were listening to what I was saying and you were creating a world around it and you were watching it. And I feel like you, you co con, you, they don't use the term co constructed, but they, you, like right. you were part of it. And, and, and so I felt that was like a case for the idea of you can use technology in ways to support a clinical process that brings you closer together. Now mm-hmm. we've got a headset we're working with that, you know, you can do a little postage stamp insert into the off to the right of headset where the clinician can pop up be your coach, your guidance, your support, and actually mm-hmm. talk to you. Meanwhile, on their screen, they're seeing what you're seeing. This is all done on a standalone headset. Right. And and so you're now the clinician is in the headset with you and can in real time without distracting you from the process and can turn off, of course, mm-hmm. um, you got that engagement. So I think those kinds of things help. But I think it's much with VR, it is much less of a hard sell with clinicians now because of course the science has documented where it's of value and where it's not. Yeah. Um and so it's there's that evidence base that it's not a harebrained scheme. Um but the next big thing is going to be the AI stuff, the AI component mm. um of virtual humans. Um so that like you know we've built a, a bunch of virtual humans for clinical apps for helping people understand themselves and clinical interviewing and measuring facial expression and vocal parameters while you're interacting with an agent. We, you know, we find that sometimes people self-disclose 
more, they feel less judged when they're interacting with a virtual human uh, rather than a real person. There's some value in that. But mm-hmm. the movement towards better AI, um, it's going to drive probably the most contentious issue in the future of clinical psychology in the next five years is going to be artificially intelligent virtual therapists. Um, ah, that's you know, and if you look at it, realistically well there's a lot of points to be made for ai in that context i mean they're always available 24 7 um they have an encyclopedic knowledge of every clinical condition and every differential diagnosis every treatment approach they have an encyclopedic knowledge of every interaction they've had with you in the mm-hmm. past. They don't have failing memory. They always are good. They can be programmed to be good natured. There's a lot of a lot yeah, of value. pluses on that side. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, you know, therapy is more than just those mechanics. There is that bond, that therapeutic alliance, that okay. um, thing. So we have always said, you know, use of these kinds of virtual agents with AIs to fill in gaps where people don't have access or they need a private thing, whatever, but the clinicians got to be involved in regular therapy. But as the technology continues to evolve in that area, I don't know the right or wrong of it, but mm-hmm. you will see that will be a very contentious debate in, in clinical psychology and other treatment professions. Maybe the more start off with the more mundane things, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like people have d- built fear of height exposure therapy yeah. with the virtual right. agent. Or snakes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And it works pretty good, but you still had a clinician doing the diagnosis and setting up the treatment plan and checking with the patient and mm-hmm. all that. But what happens when software can do that? You know, I think a human, you know, as much as they um, might want to not feel judged in some cases, I think they want a human to look them in the eye and say, okay, that was yeah. a good job. You accomplished that. You did that. You overcame that fear. You did this. Let's mm-hmm. tackle the next issue. You know, I'm here for, I think people want that reassurance of a real human, but this would be a, a you know, giant yeah. debate that's going to happen uh, mm-hmm. in the future. So very interesting to see how psychology as a field, both embraces and questions uh, this kind of technology. And of course, you know, psychologists have a very strong ethical code. Um, right. You know, all healthcare professionals do, but psychologists, you know, there's a, a very strong set of guidelines that naturally should uh, be employed. And so, well, you know, we have to just pay attention to that and take measured steps informed by the science mm-hmm. and make sure that we try to guide the field in, in a way where you can promote care but in an ethical way that, that matters client first, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. No, it's interesting. You talk about the APA. Like, I was on a panel was back in 2019. There's a guy, Nick Lang, who was a guest on the show, and he had asked me because a panel on toxic game communities, and they were uh, looking for people to be on that. And um, I just looked at the name here, Sean uh, Daughtery. Um, yeah, oh, I recognize that name. Yeah, uh, Human Factors and Behavior Neurobiology Department at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical in Florida. Oh, Mexico. Oh, okay. I mean, in uh, Florida, okay. Yeah, Daytona Beach. And um, there was a whole panel just about toxic game communities and I sat in the, and I thought it was going to be like a a round table panel and and I went there and ended up, had to give a presentation. There was like four or five of us. So I, I learned that on the spot <laughs> so i was <laughs> sitting there on my uh, iphone with, with notes like uh, knocking out bullet points as other people were talking um but it was it was interesting because it was yeah, and right. um yeah this sean was um he was great and it was just kind of a cool little experience to to be part of that panel and just be exposed to that environment and stuff so yeah yeah psychologists are all right to hang out with once in a while yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> i um i i i really liked sean and some of the other people it was like this is kind of cool like if i'd not gone in a regular game dev like it could have been a cool way to go so yeah it, you know that's how that's how i feel going to gdc you know i've got a i've got a i was on a panel last year and now i've got a an actual um a summit talk okay at the beginning of the conference so Cool. And I like, I'm glad it's going to be in person. Hopefully it'll still be in person. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. I'm a little, little concerned because I know E3 is remote and, yeah, um, right. A number of them have switched over now yeah, recently. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm waiting for it to get back to way, you know, it was, um, but it feels like it might be another year before it's more of the full blown one, but yeah, GDC is fantastic. Yeah. It's, um, it's a great, it's fun. Great conference. I meet interesting people. Well, cool. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I, um, I really appreciate it. Where can people find you online? Like website, Twitter, like 
you know, ways um, to reach out. On Twitter, I'm a uh, uh, Skip Rizzo VR, and um, okay, let's see. Show notes. I, I don't have a giant. I have a university website that has uh, mm-hmm. a lot of our papers and projects. I have a, I have a decent YouTube channel. Okay. Uh, punch in my name with about 120 videos that, that map out different hmm. projects and news stories and cool. examples and stuff. So that, that's where I usually would recommend folks to look at and then reach out to me personally, uh, yeah. email. Always, uh, always interested in hearing creative ideas and exploring potential collaborations. And now I'm in a, a position where I've scaled back my university work to about 60% and doing this work in private industry where, you know, like I mentioned with Penumbra, mm-hmm. um, where there are opportunities. Somebody has a good idea. There may be a way to, to make it so. No, and, and that's great because this audience is um, engineers and artists and game designers. And, you know, that so people out here listening right now, right? Like if you have ideas and you want to you know help on projects, reach out to Skip because this is a good way to kind of bridge that gap yeah. and let people know about the program. Because like I, I learned about it reading an article and I was really compelled just to like, reach out to you. Right. So uh, and thank you for you know, yeah. responding and stuff. Well, yeah. thanks for your interest. And uh, it's been a nice conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff that you're doing, you know, um, across the board, whether it's the PTSD, which I think is huge, just having friends who served yeah. overseas and, and yep. knowing of their challenges and you know all the other stuff you're doing to help. I think it's fantastic. Have a good night. All right, buddy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye.